lessons we've learned. How many know that learning a lesson is not always easy? Good morning. Don't freeze up on me just because your teacher's here, okay? How many of you are like me that sometimes you don't always get it the first time and you have to go at it again and again until you finally get it? Is there anybody willing to admit that? You don't always get it the first time, but hopefully you finally get it. I want us to turn to the word of the Lord this morning and let's see if there is a lesson for us to learn today. Because I believe there's life in the word. I believe his word is true. And I believe he has something for us today. Let me just ask the Lord to, to bless us as we go to his word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that it, it gives us direction, gives us life, gives us understanding of where we are, what we ought to do gives us understanding of you. So, Lord, as we break open the word today, let your blessing be upon it. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. 1 Samuel, chapter 8. And just a brief bit of background is this, that David is not yet the king. In fact, there, there is no king Saul is not the king, and the children of Israel have, uh, have not, up to this point, requested a king until we come to this chapter. It's what makes it a very pivotal chapter that we're going to read today. And as we read this chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, I'm posing a question to you. It's the same question that I've put upon myself for the last few days. But I want you to know this question is coming. And I want you to be prepared for it. I want you to be prepared to answer it honestly. I want you to listen to when the children of Israel begin to come and for the very first time in all of their history, they are about to ask for something that is so groundbreaking and something that's about to change the whole dynamic of the nation of Israel. It's when the children of Israel come to Samuel in chapter 8 here. It's because they come because Samuel had appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, Joel and Abijah. Samuel's getting older. He has these two, two of his older sons, and he has appointed them to be judges. But the problem with these two younger guys, these sons, is this, that they were greedy. They accepted bribes, and the Scripture tells us that they perverted justice. This is not, this is not a good thing. These were not the guys that you probably want, would want. And the people then, aware of how these two sons were, were conducting themselves, they decided that they would take matters into their own hands. And so what happens here is we are in chapter 8, we're going to go to verse 5. I'm going to skip around a bit, so stay with me, just leave your Bible open there. In verse 5, they go to Samuel and they say this, First Samuel 8, verse 5, look, they told him, you're getting to be an old guy. And your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. How many know it's always the first course of action for a believer to go to the Lord for guidance? God help us to be even quicker about when something comes up that displeases us or is offensive to us or is a problem for us, our first course of action ought to be to go to the Lord. Can I get an amen on that? Verse 7, here's the Lord's reply. He says, do everything that they say to you, Samuel, the Lord replied, for it is 
me that they are rejecting and not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And then look at verse 9. The Lord says this. He says, do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And then what happens, we're going to discover here in a second, is that from verses 10 through verse 18, God gives this intense checklist of consequences if they make this decision. Displeasing to Samuel, it's displeasing to the Lord, but the people are saying, we want a king. We want a king because everybody else has one. Everybody around us, all the other nations, we want to be like them. And this brings us to verse 19, which is one of the saddest verses of the Old Testament, and it says this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. And in just a minute, we're going to go through 10 through 18 and see what the consequences are for this decision they're about to make. They refused to listen to Samuel's warning, and they said this, even so, we still want a king. So here's the question that I told you, I promised you. What if you had known ahead of time, the consequences of some of the actions that you have taken? What if you had known ahead of time the price that you would have paid for some of the sins that you've committed, for seasons that you wished you had not gone into? And every one of us have had that in some measure. We all have something that we wish we could reel back in, do we not? The question I'm really asking is this. If you had known the consequences before you took that action, whatever it is that's being brought to your mind right now, if you had known the consequences before you took that action, would you still have done it? Now, I believe in consequences. I have to. They're real. They're inevitable. Paid my own share of them. And many of you, are in a position of deciding upon and administering consequences. We understand that. Parents, educators, law enforcement. You know, we've all grown up watching television commercials that are consequence-driven. I started to go all the way back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and uh, decide that would take too long. But you know what I'm talking about. Consequences of smoking. Been plenty of commercials that have told us here's the consequences if you decide to smoke, and consequences of drinking alcohol, and consequences of eating too much sugar, consequences of, of taking drugs. But here's what's happened: we've 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 gotten almost immune to consequences, and we don't even listen to them anymore. We've become almost programmed to not pay attention to them, and here's one of the reasons why and how we've become programmed to them because many of these commercials come on telling us either what we shouldn't do or they're asking us to take a certain drug. But have you noticed at the end of that commercial, in order to keep them out of court and lawsuits away from them, they have to give this little list of disclaimers. How many know what I'm talking about? And so they do that, and what they do is they have the announcer record this, and then they electronically, because I've seen how this happens, you can squish all that together and compact it, and it goes by really, really, really fast so that you almost can't perceive what he's saying. 
But he's saying something like this. If you take this drug that we're trying to talk you into taking and buying, it may happen like this. Side effects may include vomiting, diarrhea, cramping, severe pain, blindness, deafness. You could become delusional and it could possibly cause death. <laughs> but we don't listen to it. We become immune to that. Well, my first Samuel, chapter 8, is not the fast-talking announcer at the end of a commercial. First Samuel chapter 8 is a very thought-out, slow-talking God to his people about the consequences of doing something that he is adamantly against. It is God about to give them from verse 10 through verse 18 his thoughts on this. If you take this path, this is what is going to happen. Literally, before they are about to make this decision, they're getting the luxury of hearing what can and will happen if they do this. What if, what if you knew the consequences beforehand like they did? What if you had been able to hear the consequences before you got involved with him, ma'am? Nervous laughter, nervous laughter. What if you had known the consequences before you sign that contract, sir? What, what if you had known the consequences before you cheated on that business deal? What if you had truly known the consequences of taking drugs before you took them? It's going to ruin your life, destroy your family, destroy your health. What if you had known? What if you had known that you were genetically loaded to become an alcoholic before you ever took that first drink whenever you, when you were a teenager or whenever it was? Let's say God hands a card with all these consequences on it. Of, and, and, and how many of you would like to have a do-over? Sometimes I, I wish I could reel certain things back in or, or wish I had a rewind button somehow or, or, or a Command-Z on my Macintosh computer. Oh, let me undo that. Many of us want to get back our high school years or our college years or that season where we did something really stupid. And God was telling the children of Israel, don't push the we want a king button quite yet. Let me tell you what it will be like. Now remember at the beginning of chapter 8 that Samuel had appointed his two sons as judges over Israel. But they took bribes, they were greedy, perverted justice, bad dudes. The elders came to Samuel and said, we are not going to go through this again. If you remember just a few chapters before, we went through this with Eli. And we had the same kind of deal, and now we're seeing the same sort of, sort of stuff starting to happen again. And, and now you're getting old, and we're not appreciating the decisions that you're making with your sons who are now the judges. And so we want a king. I said we want a king. And they assume that's the way their problems are going to be fixed. And so when they ask for a king, God's be, God just simply says, before you choose, before you hit the play button on that, before you save this on the hard drive of Israel, I want to give you what the consequences would be. And the question to all of us, to you and me, is this. Would we still rebel if God gave you the script of that chapter of your life in advance? Would you still have cheated on that test? Would you still have gone to that party? And God handed you a card and said, here's your consequence card. This is what's going to take place. Some of you will remember radio personality Paul Harvey. He told a story on how Eskimos kill wolves 
I'm familiar with the story, and I may have even shared it once before, but it so applies here. So listen to this. The account is a bit gruesome, but I can't help but think of it as I read this chapter in 1 Samuel. First, the Eskimo will coat his knife blade with animal blood and will allow it to freeze. Then he takes this giant blade and he coats it with animal blood. He freezes it. And then he adds another layer of blood and then, and, and, and then another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. So all you see is a handle in this large tower of blood, frozen blood, but underneath it is the very sharp blade of a knife. Next, the hunter comes and fixes his knife into the ground with the blade up, and so you have this handle that is stuck down to the ground, and, and the blade is sticking up with the frozen blood on it. And when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of this blood that he smells... He discovers the bait, and here's what Paul Harvey says. says he's, he starts to lick it, tasting the frozen blood, and he begins to lick faster and, and more and more, vigorously lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. And now he's at a feverish pace, feverishly harder and harder. The wolf licks the blade because of this intense craving for that which he desires and he wants and he licks the blade of the arctic knife. So great is his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't even notice the sharp blade of the knife is now beginning to cut him. He doesn't recognize that it's his own warm blood that he is tasting, and therefore he kills himself right there. He does the job himself. In that feverish moment, he forgets everything. Forgets history, forgets what he's learned about survival, he forgets danger, and all of a sudden, he is in this moment and nothing makes sense. And nothing at that moment for the wolf is stopping him to say, Stop! You're bleeding! You're dying! Don't do this! And God was trying to get the children of Israel to slow down, saying, You're about to do something here that's going to make, take you down a path that's very dangerous. In fact, God says, It's not even about picking a king. It's about rejecting me. And God said to Samuel, Okay, say, tell him. Tell them it's about to take place. Let's read it, 1 Samuel 8, starting verse 10. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. And here's the list, checklist of consequences. Here's what's going to happen. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and, and, and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and his attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king that you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. So he's saying he's going to take your land, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, your flocks, your servants. He's going to take it all for himself. 
And the people are listening to what God says. He doesn't say it once, but he says it six times. The king you want, he will take. He will take. He will take. He says it over and over. And isn't that just like what sin does to us? Sin takes and takes and takes, and it never gives anything back. You've heard it said like I have. Sin takes you further than you want to go keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you would ever want to pay. There is not one good thing in verses 10 to 18. The king will take, 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 take from you. And here's the amazing thing, church. In the midst of all this, it doesn't make any difference. For the people said, still, we hear that. Give us a king. Give us a king. And I have to look at that and go, really? How can you read that? How can you look at that and see what it's going to be like and hear that checklist from God on the consequences and say, we still want a king? It doesn't make any difference that they know the, different, that they know the consequences. They still want a king. It's what we call the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin. The consequences of sin and disobeying God. When you are moving so feverishly into what your flesh and your sin nature wants, logic is even gone. You don't even go through the checklist. And the intervention that you need is not a checklist of consequences. You need God to show up, to shake you and to wake you up at that point. And the people didn't seem to hear one thing. The response was this, give us a king. Why wouldn't they listen to logic? Why wouldn't they listen to God? Because they were intoxicated with being like others. And at that moment, their desire to be like others was more powerful than the threat or the reality of any consequences. And the bottom line is this. The power of lust, the bottom line was the power of lust to be like other people. You heard him say it. The first verses we read, give us a king so we can be like other nations. And the power of lust to be like other people, other nations, that power won. One Puritan writer said it this way, Satan promises the best, but pays the worst. He promises honor, he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, he pays with pain. He promises profit, He pays with loss. He promises life, and the devil will pay with death. You think you're getting this prize when the king shows up. You open up the case, and you're going to see that he's going to take everything from you. A relationship that you thought was so great, looked so good on the outside, open it up and look. You're going to see it's going to take from you. And God was telling them, you're going to open up this prize, and you're going to see that it's not what you think it is because sin fascinates you and then it assassinates you. Are you awake this morning? Sin will fascinate you, and then it will assassinate you. God says, when you get your king, it's going to take everything from you. It's the power of lust. It's the power of sin. It causes us to lose all logic. God is giving them the consequences ahead of time, laying it all out clearly. Giving the list, giving them the list of all that he's going to take. And now you want to do this? Yes. We want to do it. We want a king. So the question comes back to us again. If you knew the consequences, if God gave you, I'm talking to you, 
If God gave you a list and said, if you do this, would you still have done it? And I don't have the right to answer for you. I'm going to answer for me. Because the answer is this. The consequences make no difference because consequences never stop you from doing anything. How do I know? Because some of us have had that checklist from parents. Someone handed you. Your parents handed you a checklist. Some teacher handed you a checklist. A pastor said, buddy, (laughs) that is not a good path for you. A counselor handed you a checklist. And most often it means nothing. Let me tell you, as a pastor, people walk in my office saying they want advice and pastoral counsel. What they really want is for me to condone what they already want to do. I almost think, why waste my time and yours? You want the truth? I'll tell you the truth. You tell them the truth? You confront somebody with the truth? Very rarely will you find someone who will say, you know, I'm going to do what you said, Pastor. No, they want you to condone and endorse what they have already decided that they're going to do. Because it's not the consequences that make us stop. Lust loses all sense of knowledge and future. Can't see the future. But there is one way to defeat this. How many are glad there's a way to defeat it? One way. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. If you can turn and listen at the same time. The old Puritan writers had a name for this. Listen, listen, listen. Look at me, look at me. They had a name for this. It's called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive, something that will expel the old. The expulsive power of a new affection. It means that inside of you, you have a greater affection than for that thing that you thought you wanted so bad. That thing for which lust was driving you. Because now inside of you, there's something that's greater. There's a a greater affection. The children of Israel were thinking at that moment, we don't want Samuel and his two wicked sons ruling us. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the other nations. If they have it, we want it. If they possess it, we want to possess it. If it's a king, then we want a king. And all they see is from a distance. If you've got it, I want it. And then God in his mercy tries to show them what will happen if you try to stop stop, step into that moment. And here in Romans 13, it gives you this checklist of sin and it says, Is this word sin making you uncomfortable? How many know that there's still sin in this world? Here in chapter 13, it gives this checklist of sin and says, here's the things I'm going to ask you not to do. But the answer is not in knowing the consequences. No, there's another power that you need in your life in order to be victorious. Listen to Romans 13 verse 9. For the commandments say, you must not 
commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor, what does it say? As yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is so powerful. Paul is saying, how do I keep you from committing adultery? From committing murder? From stealing? From coveting? It's not by handing you a list of consequences. Here's what's going to, oh, I can do that. Telling you that if you, if you commit murder, you're going to go to jail. You're going to live with guilt. You're going to ruin a family. You're going to ruin your own life. And here's the consequence card. Or, or he could say, don't commit adultery because you're going to be divorced. You're going to hurt your spouse. You're going to destroy your children, destroy your home. And even when we as pastors hand out the consequence card, and we do have to do that from time to time, people still walk out and do their own thing because there's not a consequence in the world that will keep you from feverishly licking the knife with the frozen blood on it. A man named Eric Mateus, I think is how you say his last name, wrote an incredible book called Bonhoeffer. Thank you, Janice, for giving me that book. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this amazing thing on the strength of lust. Listen to what he says. In our members, there are slumbering inclinations toward desire which are sudden and fierce. The flesh burns and in its flaming. Makes no difference whether it's sexual, vanity, ambition, revenge, anger, love of fame, or greed. At this moment, when our lust comes out, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil, because Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness toward God. And here, what Paul says, how do I deal with don't commit adultery? Don't commit murder, don't steal. If you do those things, here's the consequences. And Paul says, mm -mm. you knowing the consequences is not going to fix this. I'm not going to stop you. There has to be an affection that is greater than lust. There has to be an affection greater than revenge. An affection greater than desire of wanting or coveting. And Paul says, and that answer is this. The expulsive power of a new affection. Jesus summed it up like this when he said, you want to deal with sin? Here it is. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Paul was saying? If you love God and you love your neighbor, then this thing you're dealing with doesn't even become the issue. Because my fight is with sin is not binding it, rebuking it, and going through a deliverance session. It's not a sin issue, what he's saying here. It's a love issue. Oh, I hope you're hearing this this morning. 
It's when I lose love for God and love for people is when this stuff creeps up on me. What keeps you free from sin is loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The issue when dealing with teenagers is not telling them not to have sex outside of marriage because uh, you can get sexually transmitted diseases, you're going to have a baby now to take care of, you're going to have child support. That's not the answer. Do you think those consequences talks are stronger than lust? Come on! Do you think an STD commercial is stronger than the lust inside of us? You have to have a new love, a new affection that is strong enough and has enough power to expel that desire that burns within you. Your new love can be greater than the old desire. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Your love for God is your strongest deterrent against sin. goes like this. If you love people, you won't murder. If you love people, you won't gossip. You're meddling now, Dan. Back off. When you gossip, you're deliberately destroying unity. Is that what you want? Oh, that's consequence talk, and that's not the answer. The answer is you don't gossip because you love God and you love people. You don't do those things that you know are displeasing to him because you love God and you love people. You don't commit adultery because you love God and you love people. A list of consequences means nothing, but the answer is found in loving God and loving people. And that means loving God more than anything else. If you, if you love marriage more than you love God, you're going to mess this thing up. Hear me carefully. Because you're First love has to be God. That's the thing that keeps you from sin, not a list of consequences. Are you hearing me this morning? Your first love has to be the Lord. You know what John says? I'm going to have some real talk here for a second. John says this. If somebody says, I love God, but hates his brother, you want me to just tell you what the word says? He's a liar. You walked in here today, I don't want to be by them. Hmm. Then don't say you love God. If you love God, say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. There's no other way to say it. That's the way the word says it. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot love God and hate your brother. It's impossible, dear friend. Sister, you cannot love God and hate your sister. It's impossible. So the issue is not your brother or your sister. The issue is your love for God. Because when you love God, oh, 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 when you love God, you can even love the unlovable people. When you love God, when you allow that affection to so be a part of your inside. When you love God, you can even love the people that you thought you could never stand. How many know I'm telling you the truth today? It's your love for God that is your greatest deterrent against sin. Remember when Jesus said, three times he said to Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? 
feed my sheep. Notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say to to, to Peter, do you love people? And he didn't ask him, do you love sheep? He didn't ask him that. No, 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 no. He said, do you love me? Because when you love me, you can even love those dumb sheep. And the church said, amen. Amen. Listen, church, we need to be careful what we fall in love with. Don't fall in love with the church. Don't fall in love with the preacher. Don't fall in love with the denomination. Don't fall in love with the choir. Don't fall in love with some evangelist. Don't fall in love with Christian television. Fall in love with Jesus. First John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. It's not a sin issue. It's a love issue. I'm going to say it again. It's not a sin issue you're facing today. It's a love issue. Turn the focus on that. That's the lesson we learn today. It's not a sin issue. It's a love issue. It's not fighting the sin. It's saying, God... More than anything else, I want to love you. More than anything else, I want all of my other affections and the things that have captured my attention and my love, I want them to fade away so that you and you alone have my affection. That's where the answer lies. We've got a little dog at our house that we've had for 10 years. She's a Havanese, black and white thing. She's spoiled rotten and she's a little weird. A little quirky. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that from the front row over here. She is. She's weird. Yeah. We've had a dog all of our married life. We've loved them all. We're dog lovers at our house. We also have a cat. I am not a cat lover. I'm sorry. Don't send me your emails. Don't send me pictures of precious little kittens. Others like cats at our house. Okay. We have one. We've had a dog all of our life, married life, and we've learned through the years of responsible dog ownership that you have to train them. Sometimes we've done okay with that, and sometimes we have been absolutely disastrous with that. And because we've not always been glowingly successful, we determined that when we got this dog about 10 years ago as a little puppy, we, would, we were going to do a really good job training her, and so we got some help from somebody who could help us do a good job. And what a good trainer will teach you is this. When you put the food on the ground, the dog is supposed to look at you, the master. So I watch as one of our kids will say, take the food, and they'll go, stay, stay, stay. And even with the food on the ground, she's not looking at the food, she's looking at the master. She knows the food's right there. She wants it so bad, she's salivating. You can see it drooling off. She wants it, and she's ready to eat it. She'll eat anything. She's ready to eat it. But hear me. There has to be some affection in that animal that sees the master as a greater sight than looking down at the food. Hello? Just take a minute and personalize that. 
There has to be some affection in us that sees the master has a greater sight than that thing that is so easily besetting you. So therefore, the goal is this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, what? Will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because quite honestly, the more you look at the stuff that you think you want, the more it commands your attention and you give it attention, the less you are able to see Jesus. But when you keep your eyes set upon Jesus, all of that other stuff is still there. And you know it's there. But you've got a better sight. You're looking at something better because you're keeping your focus upon the master. Fixing your eyes upon him who is the author and finisher of your faith. So the issue, dear friend, is not being aware of the consequences. I dare say that will never stop you. Seen too much. Talked, dealt with too many people. Consequences will never stop you. The issue is asking God to expand your heart for him. To develop a greater love for Jesus. How many of you today want a greater love for Jesus? Come on, how many of you want a greater love for Jesus? Put your hands together.